Loyal listeners to the district, I have an exciting announcement for you. I'm Ben Dominich, editor-at-large of The Spectator World, and I wanted to let you be the first to know that we're launching a new format for this podcast focused on the 2024 election cycle. Welcome to Thunderdome, our weekly conversation about the politicians, personalities, and policy debates at the center of the 2024 presidential contest, beginning with the historically unprecedented primaries. I'll be discussing all of this with a pair of Washington political experts each week. The infighting, backbiting, impressive money hauls, embarrassing campaign gas, who's up, who's down, and more, all a part of the most epic contest we've seen this century. As a subscriber, you don't have to do anything. The new format will be in your feed this week, but we hope you'll rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend obsessed with what will happen in 2024. I'm Ben Dominich. Welcome to Thunderdome. I was just thinking about how effective I was as a Hill staffer back in the you know late 2000s as you know just with a blackberry i could send you know epic length emails and literally i i mean i edited legislation at one point uh you know on on my blackberry when i was on the road well uh, and and didn't have uh and had forgotten my my laptop charger and sent it right back and it was it's it's like and now we have these devices that are both less secure uh less useful and everyone's kind of pining for something that came before. And it's like, well, you know, just just because we made things flashier and shinier and prettier does not mean that we made them more functional. Yeah, it's essentially so it's and they're also like essentially surveillance machines now, right? <laughs> so it's yeah. like they're not but it, no, Rich Lowry used to write his columns on his Blackberry. It made me sick at the at the time. I would walk into his office and he'd be writing his column on his Blackberry. But it's just because I have big fat sausage fingers but you're you're i mean you're, you're you're absolutely right that like there's a there was a sweet spot where everyone you know everyone fell in love with shrinking everything down and making it flatter and slicker and smoother and apple was like the worst offender in this case but like no there was a functional size for you know cell phones it's not like it's not like people were competing to make the smallest pistol right like there's a there's this there's a size at which, oh i get like, it we've all got derringers <laughs> yeah you know exactly there's a size at which you still want a glock 17 you know there's... <laughs> what's your best blackberry experience john it was like hot shit to get one man um you know um i had some pretty epic brick breaker scores um <laughs> I mean, I definitely like had, I think, beat the game at least like once or twice over in like one sitting, you know, because like it's like once you got to level 30, it would kick you back to like level one, but it was like, a little bit faster. Um, <laughs> but I think-, I think the thing that was great about it was like the only thing you could do was email and that or do a phone call. I think that, you know, being able to like do like look at Wikipedia or Twitter or that kind of stuff, the lack of functionality was what drove productivity. Yes, that's exactly. Right. That's, yeah, the, that's right. the, the point is it, it was not, it had a very limited, field for distraction and a very powerful field for doing work right and so you could effectively have someone who would you know take a long walk or go to a lunch somewhere and they would actually be more effective in that two-hour period when they were at a lunch that they hated and didn't want to listen to you know the people who were speaking than they were when they were actually in the office and had more distractions because they could just sit there and and, you know look at hotline or something like that you know as opposed to doing their work Aren't the, uh, so um, ju- 
so aren't, sorry aren't the yeah. always sunny guys doing a they're doing a blackberry like um halt and catch fire parody it's like a have you seen the trailer they are that? they are yeah. it, and uh and it looks excellent um, yeah it'll be funny <laughs> um uh, especially because the whole thing was like stuck together with with duct tape and it's all these angry canadians right. uh, which which is uh, definitely a a category of ca- of comedy that i did not know that i would appreciate but i have come to truly appreciate in the era of of shorzy and letter kenny yeah you're um, kind of sore yeah uh, all right, gentlemen, this is Thunderdome, and we're going to be talking about the 2024 uh, presidential uh, election uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, it will last as long as we are alive, if uh, 2016 is any kind of predicate to this. Uh, and I think we should start by just uh, maybe you know, giving our thoughts on on you know what happened with Ron DeSantis and his uh, tour of Iowa uh, he, you know, went out there and and had a number of different events. Um, the the one thing that the two things who stuck out to me, uh, one is he was certainly a lot more aggressive against uh, the most uh, recent, uh, uh, you know, fire sort of, you know, from Donald Trump. What, however, you want to describe it, criticism, uh, you know, undermining, whatever. Uh, then one would normally expect a candidate to be in when what is effectively a campaign rollout, meaning that he was talking about another guy. Um, and I and I kind of want your both of your takes takes on that. The other thing, though, that stuck out to me as a positive, uh, and uh, and this is something that I've seen many many conservatives uh, and even non conservatives uh, campaign with in the past. They have this whole idea that, well, you know, the wife is the secret weapon. And what that actually means is we are going to botch how we manage the wife <laughs> because because she's going to remain a secret weapon for everyone until maybe we get to a convention and maybe then she performs well. But but they don't really put her front and center. The DeSantis campaign made the decision to put Casey out there right off the bat. And, you know, everybody, you know, in all the quotes from there, and I've been on the phone with a couple of different consultants today and they're all... Well, you know, if only she was running and that kind of thing. Well, but but the point is to sort of say a weapon isn't a weapon if you keep it secret. And I, I do think that's an interesting choice. I also think that it's one of these things that sort of uh, begs Donald Trump to start attacking her. And I wonder what that looks like. Uh, I wonder how Ron reacts to it. I wonder how the whole experience with Ted Cruz and Heidi colors that reaction. Uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, Dan, John, what are your thoughts on on what DeSantis did in Iowa? Should I go first, sure. John? Uh, yeah, go, go for it. Well, so I think, it, it, you know, it, not an original thought, but I think this is the rollout he should have had, right? And, you know, you look at the Twitter rollout, which was managed by his very online inner circle. Um, some of those guys I know and like, some of those guys I know and don't like, some of those guys I don't know and don't like, and fill in all the quadrants there but it, in in any case i mean not as not a, not a huge disaster as we've seen he's rebounded pretty well from it but like this is how you do a rollout i think you know the tried and true you know stick to your can lines go to some friendly audiences do some interviews cover the waterfront conservative media we saw him you know the last couple of days take questions from the mainstream press too you know looked a lot better and you're right sharper uh, contra Trump than you would expect. Still not saying his name, though. It's like a thing I did the first couple years of the Trump presidency where I said, you know, 
all anybody says in anything they write these days is Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. So I had this experiment with myself where I'd write columns and see how long I could go writing about American politics without saying the guy's name. But he seems to be doing it as a you know, primary campaign tactic is really interesting. He doesn't, he, he does never names, never names his, uh, his enemy. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And then the Casey bit, it reminds me a little bit of that, what, what Alec Baldwin says to, uh, uh, Matt Damon in the departed where he says, you know, get, you, you should get married, get married, you know, sh- shows the rest of the guys, uh, you know, on the force that there's somebody who can stand you. Right. Uh, <laughs> and he says some other things, but um, so certainly, you know, you've got a guy who's got a reputation for being a little wooden, a little, um, a little neurodivergent perhaps. Um, and a little, you know, uh, aloof and certainly Casey's a very sympathetic figure. I mean, there's really, as I mean, we could talk about this all day, but there's no excuse obviously for the way, that Cruz sort of uh, handled that whole thing. He sort of came out swinging and then quickly, um, you know, backpedaled and of course became like one of the most loyal footstools mm-hmm. um, to Trump after, after, after that had happened. But well, I, I would just as a, as a cul-de-sac, I would say, I think he kind of did that the worst because the, the best way to handle like think something like that is to brush it off and to not get all up in your, you know, pistols at dawn attitude um, you know, on the initial kind of sniveling insult. coward. Yeah. yeah. You know, that kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. uh, uh, and, but then I think what that does is it also kind of sets up the expectation that there is a point where you might do this too much and you will at that point have crossed the line. And at that point I need to walk across the debate stage and punch you right in the nads. And that's, that's right, yeah. and that's the, and that's the thing that I think that people, that, politicians tend to like they 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 overreact to that first insult how dare you you know that kind of thing and it's and then it's like no no no, no. save that just like 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 laugh it off you know treat it like a like a joke treat it like a oh my gosh how pathetic do you have to be to attack my you know uh, uh wife who's had problems and you know issues and that kind of thing you know just pathetic you know and insulting and whatever you know whatever you know not a big deal uh she's she's her own woman and she can stand up for herself and but then also just keep that in your back pocket, you know, like keep it in right. your back pocket to sort of say, uh, there is a point where you might cross a line, and when you do cross that line, you'll find out real quick. <laughs> right. And he's gonna, I mean, look, he's gonna have to have that approach to the entire campaign because you know, this is something I kind of wanted to get at in the macro. I mean, so so to finish that thought on Casey, I mean, she I think she's probably a more sympathetic figure. Then Mrs. Cruz, uh, you know, mm-hmm. she doesn't she's not a managing director at Goldman Sachs, for instance. Yeah. But um, and she's just a little, you know, she's a little bit more, I don't know. Um, she she just fits a little bit of a mold that's gonna resonate with with more, I think, bread and butter Republican primary voters. But well, Republican you know, I, I will just point out Republican primary voters, Republicans have not had a a first lady in office who is a conservative. Like, I mean, you know, most Republicans who are around today, like, I mean, you know, Nancy Reagan, you know, right. like that's that's it's basically it, you know, unless you buy into my, you know, sort of uh, convoluted deep dive theory that that Melania Trump was Q. I, I don't think that you, know, <laughs> you can you can actually sort of Donald, you must go out and stop this deal. No, right. it, it is it is uh, it's I, I think that more, you know, I think Republicans and conservatives generally, particularly conservative women will like someone who comes across as capable of defending 
ideas and and principles when it comes to particularly child rearing given how toxic like education has become totally and she and they should i mean we'll see how like to your point we'll see how they use her as a weapon but she could be a weapon she's not she's not just going to be a target she's going to be you know out actually out there making an affirmative case if they're smart about how they do it but look you know DeSantis has a very unenviable task obviously i think i think we probably all agree i'd be curious to hear from both of you that you know it's he's a you know it, it's like a you know, a prohibitive underdog at this point which is kind mm-hmm. of amazing to say but he'll have to run a perfect race right like i mean he'll essentially it's like you know speaking of conservative women right it's like it's like what the ira said about margaret thatcher like you have to be lucky every day we have to be lucky once and donald trump is kind of a if you'll forgive me a you know car bomb right Mm -hmm. he's a political car bomb and he's a weapon and and uh, you know is like a you know he's a candidate with a suicide vest and he only has to get lucky once to take out uh a DeSantis really have one of those big moments like you know Christie had with Rubio or 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 Trump himself had with half a dozen others right mm-hmm. and DeSantis is going to have to go pole to pole and do everything exactly right so um yeah he could screw up Casey but he could screw up 15 different things and they're gonna yeah. they're gonna result in the same you know predictable consequence yeah I just don't think that we you know look Trump is absolutely the, the favorite in the race right now but you know, and I don't know that would go so far, Dan, as to say he's the prohibitive favorite, right? I mean, that that would, you know, we, we, I remember when that was Hillary Clinton back in 2008, right? That she was going to walk to the nomination. Um, sure, you know, certainly Trump, you know, has the numbers and has, has support, but I mean, you know, we've seen that that's been a little bit soft in that, in that immediate afterglow, that December, you know, 22, January 23, when, you know, Ron DeSantis was sort of the the 800 pound gorilla that had a great election year and great down ballot year in Florida uh, when national Republicans probably underperformed uh, relative to expectations. You know, he was he was, you know, at parity or a little bit better with with Trump. Um, you know, I, I think the difference, too, is, you know, you know, I think the cruise thing, you know, all, all of it is a, is a great example or, you know, or because you look at what's going to happen this time around. Right. The theory of the case for everybody in 2016 was I'm going to emerge on my own merits. Right. For Cruz, I'm going to be the, you know, the conservative guy. If you're John Kasich, you know, I'm going to be sort of this moderate that's going to build out of Ohio. But everyone was waiting for Trump to falter and no one wanted to alienate his voters. This time, Trump is the, you know, in the the 1980s video game sense, he is the final boss and Mm -hmm. you have to take him on at some point. In a way that you know you are able to peel away some of his voters, but you know I, I think it remains to be seen how much they're his voters versus you know when presented with an actual alternative and where a theory of the case is going to have to be built around appealing to them whether it's on terms of electability or I'm going to be more effective at getting stuff done. Um, I don't think that we've seen you know somebody really go at Trump. Um, well, can I can I can I adjust that slightly, John? I feel like people have gone at Trump, but in ways that were not really. I don't think we've actually seen somebody go at him in the way that DeSantis is going at him, and that shifts, I think, to sort of uh, an, an easy transition to, to talking about the COVID issue, because DeSantis is going at Trump, basically saying, "Hey, you know, Donald Trump talked a good game and did a lot of good stuff, and then and then COVID came around." And he did everything wrong. 
He trusted the bureaucrats. He locked down. He did this, that, and the other. He gave Anthony Fauci a freaking award on his last, you know, week in office, you know, and we did the opposite in Florida. And that's why everybody moved here from New York and California and everywhere else. And that's why you can trust me and you can't trust him. And, and Trump's response to that has been really interesting to me because I kind of thought, you know how Trump kind of zigs where you expect him to zag and that kind of thing. I thought that Trump might be savvy enough to respond to something like that by like patting Ron DeSantis on the head and sort of going, you know, it's cute what you did with your state. And I'm I'm a fan of it and I live here and it's it's good. You know, you you did good. You did fine. I don't agree with all of it, but you did fine. Uh, but you just don't know the challenges that we were facing on a national level. I'd like to see you face those kind of challenges. You know, we we did you know, uh, Operation Warp Speed, which you could never do. You know, we did, you know, basically cite the accomplishments and sort of say, uh, you know, it, it's fine that you think that you, but you had, you know, you, you had a completely different scenario in Florida than I did uh, nationally. Uh, and, and the truth is that you never would have even been able to do any of those things, uh, except for the fact that I endorsed you in the first place. In other words, kind of belittling him. Instead, he's gone hard at him. And said, basically, you sucked uh, at COVID. You sucked at all these different things. You both were too harsh uh, and too lenient. Uh, and even this week, uh, uh, saying Andrew Cuomo did a better job, which was something yeah. that I just never thought that yeah. he would actually explicitly say. I thought he might imply it, but he just came out and said it. And Andrew Cuomo was very appreciative on Twitter of it. Uh, so what are your all's thoughts on, on that? Because it, it's just... That to me seems like a an an error on his part. I feel yeah. like he could have diffused the whole thing really quickly, and instead, he's basically his response has made it an issue. If I'm the DeSantis camp, I have to love this, right? That you're basically throwing your candidate a strike, a called strike in the middle of the plate. You know, if there's anything that you know the DeSantis, and, and I think it's worth noting that. Ron DeSantis was a very popular governor with bipartisan support pre-COVID, but obviously kind of came to national prominence in, in COVID and sort of, you know, everything that followed after it. Um, but but going at that in a place where, you know, you're sort of attacking his greatest strength and potentially your own greatest weakness. So, so Ben, you talked about, you know, the Trump could embrace, you know, Project Warp Speed, and it, and it was a historic accomplishment and an incredible job by you know, the scientific community to to come up with a vaccine. But it's a vaccine now that Trump has been kind of ambivalent around, right? You know, he, you know, he'll talk about it, but then crowds will boo and he'll sort of back away from it. Uh, I think that this is an area where he is just not comfortable and doesn't have a good story to tell. And I think that also, I think when you look at the totality of the Florida example versus, you know, the Trump experience in, in Washington, it goes back to something that I've thought for a long time is that the biggest failure of Donald Trump in handling COVID was the inability to contextualize uh, the risk of COVID relative to all of the other problems that we have observed happen, whether it was people not being able to make their mortgage payments, whether it was social isolation and loneliness, whether it was learning loss. You know, you go on down the list, you know, look, I think that Anthony Fauci's job, at least in those early days, was to limit the number of COVID deaths. But the president's job at that point in time, President Trump, was to say, Look, his job is to do this. My job is to look after the well-being of the whole nation. And it can't just be based on one metric and one metric only, which is how many people are getting COVID. It has to be, you know, sort of a more holistic argument. I think Ron DeSantis can say, I did that. 
we prioritized seniors when it came time for the COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. We made sure that schools were open. And look, if you if you don't believe me, look at the numbers. Look at what Im- migration in the country was over the last couple of years. You know, when people were given the choice to move freely, they came to Florida. So I think the more that the president pushes on this, I mean, you're pushing on a place where, you know, where you know, DeSantis now doesn't have to talk about a six-week abortion ban. He doesn't have to talk about yep. those things. Every time that Trump is talking about COVID, he's talking about something where it is right in the wheelhouse of of the governor. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I think it's an interesting lens to look at the extent to which it, this gets to what John was saying about, you know, him being the final boss and, and, and you know, trying to peel away some of his voters. You know, th- this is an, a lens to look at the extent to which the Trump coalition is a coalition, right? So there's so there's different there's kind of like the Trump Youngkin voter, right? Who knows that that voter who's voting, you know, at, with COVID as a top two or three issue and the handling of COVID as a top two or three issue. Those voters know that Ron DeSantis did not suck on COVID. They know <laughs> that he saw that he saw further around the curve, frankly, than than yours truly, right? He he handled it, you know, better better than I would have. I was kind of closer to the way Trump handled it and closer to dare I say Fauciism in the early days. Well, closer. I, I just to, to add one more name to that, closer to Tucker Carlson. I mean, Tucker. That's right. Really, yeah. Tucker. It's kind of memory old now, but that's right. I, I think that he, you know, had a, a really powerful grip on a lot of conservatives about shutting down the country initially. Un, under, I will say, in his defense, under the supposition that there would be you know, a reopening in four weeks or six weeks or what happened, whatever, you know, would happen like that. And it obviously did not happen. And that's where right. things turned around. So. And, and and DeSantis saw further further around the bend and saw more clearly and figured out the equities better, certainly than Trump did, and also handled the bureaucracy just masterfully compared to what Trump did. So those voters know that DeSantis doesn't suck on COVID. Now, there's a whole other subgroup. And the question really, the, the million dollar question is, how big of a subgroup is it? But there's a whole other subgroup of Trump voters that for whom the, let's just say, cogency of Trump's attacks on his enemies is not the the top priority. It's just the mm-hmm. fact that they're happening. And the question is going to be how many are in that former camp and and how many are in in the latter. But it's it's funny. It's like, you know, we, we're not I don't know if we're going to talk about this today, but, you know, the on on the debt ceiling deal, we were talking you and I were talking offline about how. You know, this is a better budget. This is a better omnibus than the the spending bills that happened when you had Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and Donald Trump making policy, right? Yep. And there's a there's a there's a connection here, which is that Republican voters are sort of so jaded on the fiscal stuff that they let those guys get away with that, right? You had unified control over Washington, and it was well, so, it wasn't it wasn't a deal. We, breaker, we have to right? take a brief pause here to appreciate the back and forth between one Thomas Massey and one Russ vote today on Twitter. Uh, which which was truly impressive. Russ vote, uh, you know, obviously formerly from Heritage Action, you know, longtime bomb thrower from the fiscal conservative right, uh, gets named OMB head under Trump and uh, is forced to engage, uh, I believe, against his will uh, in a massive, massive fiscal expenditure uh, during during COVID. Uh, and now is, of course, back with his own uh, new group uh, post uh, Trump. Uh, you know, throwing bombs once again against this debt deal. Uh, Thomas Massey calling him out on that. Uh, I just found that moment to be to be quite quite hilarious, and uh, and Russ Russ's denunciation of Thomas uh, to be very much an indication of the whole like uh, the the heritage action approach of just like we are going to swear at you and throw bombs at you and hate on you until you adjust your perspective to uh, be aligned with ours. 
no matter what. We're never going to consider a different right. strategy whatsoever. But, but look, there's a there's an electoral valence here, which is that the Republican voter is so used to being lied to and seeing no results on fiscal policy that that was not a deal breaker. But COVID policy is not like that. You had Republican governors who absolutely took the correct course. Now, some with greater and some with lesser success, but they, they by and large got it better than the Democratic governors. And the the sort of good ones, the sort of, you know, whatever you want to call them, whether they're nat cons or populists or whatever, you know, however you want to group them. Otherwise, there, there, there were ranks and orders and tiers of uh, Republican gubernatorial responses to COVID. And that's fresh in voters' minds. They saw what competence and execution looks like. And mm -hmm. it's not going to be like the fiscal issues where we're just so used to taking it for the last, whatever, 100 million zillion years <laughs> that, you, you know, that everyone just sort of gets a free pass. There's a clear contrast, and that should have electoral consequences. So let's talk about the new additions to the race, which we expect to come within the next week. Uh, one is obviously the former vice president, Mike Pence, telegraphing that he's going to be uh, announcing shortly. And another, uh, you know, not as big of a name necessarily, but uh, certainly someone who mattered quite a bit in 2016, even though he had no shot at the eventual nomination. And that's Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. Uh, my own opinion on this is that uh, Pence is not going to go anywhere. Uh, and that, in effect, all of the things that a voter might like about Mike Pence, they can like about Tim Scott. And uh, and he is a much more charismatic figure and he doesn't have the baggage. Uh, and that that is something that I think, you know, especially for evangelical Christians, the type of people who elevated, you know, candidates like Ben Carson, that's going to be something that I think definitely appeals to them. And the flip side for Christie, I mean, he's not going to go anywhere but I have to ask you both, like, do you think he's just in this like, you know, Chris Farley strapped with road flares, you know, in the in the in the bank uh, lobby, you know, basically just waiting for the debate stage or trying to get on it in order to just do some kind of suicide mission against Trump? One thousand percent. And, you know, and from the Trump guys, I don't feel great about it. I think Chris Christie, you know, I heard him within the last month in an interview sort of articulate. Kind of the the track of a race that was that was that the Kraushar interview at, at Axios? It was pretty good. Oh, it, it was yeah. with it was with the ruthless guys. Ruthless um, guys. It was the ruthless ones. Yeah. Um. But but basically saying you know that the the way to take on Trump is basically just to come at him literally every single day. Um. You know, and that the only things that you know the Trump respects are you know intelligence and ruthlessness. And look, I think Chris Christie has both of those in spades. I think he's also the most talented communicator in the Republican Party, um, bar none. Right. I mean, he, you know, say what you will about the census's wins and they were incredibly impressive. You know, Christie was piling up the same margins in a state that hasn't voted Republican in like forever. Right. Mm -hmm. At a presidential level. Um, and look, I think Chris Christie is a guy that, um, you know, when he's got an axe to grind is somebody that is willing to you know go grind it. I think what's interesting is if you look at him and Pence, both these are two guys that are not, you know, if, if you want to sure tranche out the race right now, you've got. You know, Trump and DeSantis, right? And there, there's no world in which those guys coexist. It's, you know, it, there can only, it's, you know, two men enter, one man leaves, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you've got some people where it's not clear yet. Does Tim Scott want to be vice president or does he want to be president? Um, Nikki Haley, I think, probably is more auditioning to be vice president. Um, you know, but beyond that, then, 
I think that the the next you know sort of group is this Pence um, Christie group, where both of those guys, for different reasons, probably feel fairly wronged and with pretty good reasons to feel that way. Christie absolutely is going to come into this with uh, you know with a knife between his teeth and you know ready to get dropped off in the you know the, the jungle and do his best Rambo thing. <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting to see what Pence does. You know, if if you you have to imagine it, it during one of the debates, the question is posed to you know to Pence. You know, how do you feel standing on a debate stage with with somebody that was you know sort of encouraging you know some pretty extreme elements that essentially wanted you know to execute you on January sixth? Do you believe that the president wanted to have you hanged? <laughs> right. I mean, that question is going to be asked. That's old think... news, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, look, it's going to be an interesting question of is 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 Pence there? Is you know, will he be a, a vote sink away from somebody more viable, or is he going to be someone who can? also try to make the case that Donald Trump is not the way forward for the Republican party in 2024. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that that's where those two where Pence and Christie both are, are interesting is because they seem like they are there, you know, Pence, I think does want to be president. I think Christie knows that, you know, the window probably closed for him, but how, do, how do they choose to handle it? And are they people that are sort of, you know, in, in, in the WWE cage match, are they tagging in with the Santas to some extent? Um, you know, or, or are they going to try to prosecute the case as though they, they think they can, you know, sit behind the Resolute desk? So I'll just disagree. Surprisingly, I'll, I'll disagree with John on Christie. I'll, I'll say Pence. I think Pence would be a fine Republican president in 1992. He'd be great. Right. Yeah. I don't think I don't think that's you know, I, I don't think there's any lane like practically or even necessarily a, a policy um, case for, you know, uh, for, for a President Pence. I like the guy just fine on Christie. You know, I have to say, so I was national reviews, Chris Christie guy in the, in the aughts. I, you know, I, I take some non-zero percent of the blame for hyping him up. I'm from New Jersey. I voted for the guy. I wrote a big cover story on him, you know, when he was a national, when he was a, a candidate and, and, and covered with great interest and zeal, all of his policy accomplishments in my home state but i've since come to the view that it's like it's like they said you know they, they said about brazil it's the country of the future and it always will be i kind of <laughs> think chris christie is the future of the republican party and he always always will be right and and i've come to the view that i, I don't i honestly john i don't think he's got great political instincts i think he's got one political instinct and it worked for one term in one state and yeah he's a he's a kind of compelling compelling communicator in the same way Trump is, which is to say he's an ethnic from the coast, right, who is not afraid to drop a couple of F-bombs and talk like he's, you know, hanging out outside of Satrialis with a couple of guys from the neighborhood. And that's all well and good. But the I, I just wonder what the point of him is in a race where, as we just said 10 minutes ago, um, you know, DeSantis is going to take on Trump hard and he's going to take him on on policy grounds with Trump's own voters. I, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see what Christie does on the debate stage, but it feels like he's going to make more of the kind of attacks that please mainstream debate moderators and the mainstream press and the Atlantic Monthly than the kind of attacks that are going to resonate with Republican primary voters. I mean, again, we'll we'll see, but, you know, C- Christie is the first, let's also not forget, Christie's the first guy Hugh Curb Your Enthusiasm Tuba, who stood up next <laughs> to Trump and endorsed him in the race, you know, in 2016. So, 
so <laughs> the, I mean, the, the the infamous I, Chris Christie has no mouth and he must scream moment. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you know, and this, so uh, so again, one term, one state. The second Look, term was I, kind of a disaster. Yeah, I, I will, I will, I'll be between the two of you. I think that I think that Christie is a is a talented communicator in a field of untalented communicators. So if you look back at 2016, you had different types of communicators then. You had the kind of, you know, aspirational, optimistic sounding, you know, Wall Street Journal editorial page run through, you know, a, uh, you know, Disney machine or something like that in Marco Rubio. <clears throat> you had the, um, you know, the harsh sort of tea party grown up and turned into a sentient being uh, uh, version in Ted Cruz. Um, you had all the other different, you know, uh, folks who were, you know, sniping from the sidelines, and then you had kind of over uh, abundance of wealth, you know, in uh, Jeb Bush, and you know, over investment in terms of their uh, possibility that was there, and then you had the just like sourpuss, uh, you know, moralistic highbrow uh, guy in John Kasich who kept reminding you that his dad was a mailman. So you didn't really have, you know, a great set of communicators, but they're better than this lot. I mean, if you look at this group of people, who's the best communicator? Vivek Ramaswamy? I mean, it's it's like, you know, most of these guys are just not good when it comes to camera work or when it comes to the kind of communication that we had that we've seen in the past. And that's one of the reasons why I think that Christie could kind of shine just because he has that capability. I have an alternate, you know, dream world where he ends up across the stage from Stephen A. Smith every day on ESPN. And that is must watch TV. Like I, I'm I'm dialed into that every single day. If it's something the like that. But it's the same on sports, Ben. He's a Mets Cowboys fan. I what's know. The, what's the point of him? You know, yeah. <laughs> so so uh, but uh, but to go back to the Pence question, you know, I think. I think Pence is going to go nowhere, but it's just kind of interesting to look back at his career and how significant he was as a figure in the Congress as kind of being this cat's paw of a lot of different, uh, you know, conservative groups uh, and uh, and also someone who really didn't achieve all that much versus the kind of people who we have now who are louder, brasher, meaner, uh, more cutthroat and actually seem to have gotten more out of that. Uh, maybe not with this debt ceiling deal, but certainly in a lot of other areas. Uh, and I, I just think that, you know, this is something he has to do, but it feels a lot like Dan Quayle. And, you know, that's someone who he looks up to a lot. Uh, but, you know, I don't think a lot of Republicans have Dan Quayle on the top list of, of people who they are aspirational about. Uh, with the few minutes that we have left, I did want to raise one other issue, which is on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, there was this piece that ran. I don't know if you had a chance to read it in uh, the free press uh, on uh, RFK Jr. Yep. Uh, there was uh, they had a, a a profile bit on Marianne Williamson, but I think that's you know totally irrelevant. It's it's more just RFK Jr. is you know if you look at the various polls that are out there, uh, performing uh, at a level where regardless of what you're looking at, it's double digits. I mean, it's you know maybe it's eleven, maybe it's nineteen, maybe it's you know uh, so, somewhere around in there. Uh, I have a bet uh, with uh, a, a close friend of mine who happens to be married to me that uh, sh that he will uh, break 25%. Uh, and I'm just curious as to your thoughts on RFK and like what is going on there on the left side of the spectrum. Is this, is this a real thing? Is it simply a, an expression of 
you know, uh, I wish Biden were younger or something like that? Or is it something that basically says, no, he actually deserves to be on the on the stage with Biden. I would like to assess him as a potential party leader in contest with the current president. It's a protest vote, right? I mean, I, I think we, you know, I, I think we've seen this before. Um, uh, I think, look, I mean, it's other other than sort of the, the, the Kennedy name and the mystique around that. And it's still, you know, very real force in, in democratic politics. Um, you know, I, I just don't understand what the, what the rationale is, right? It's, he, you know, hasn't held sort of any, you know, elected office, you know, he's not leading some sort of, you know, large organization. I just, you know, to me, it's a place to park your vote. And right, he's he's not a young man either, right? He's in his, he's in his sixties, which, you know, I guess relatively, right, is, is younger. That's a spring chicken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. But I mean, I think you insert, you know, kind of any, you know, any sort of left of center, like progressive kind of curious Democrat there. And, you know, I, I think it's whether it's dissatisfaction with the president from, you know, from younger, more progressive Democrats who are, you know, want somebody that looks more like them, you know, which is not, a you know, again, an old ethnic, you know, white guy from from the East um, or whether it's, you know, the the age issue, which seems to keep coming up in polling. Um, but you know, look, I don't think there's any real threat to Joe Biden. I don't think he's going to have to de- debate, you know, RFK Jr. Um, you know, I, I think it's just the another question is how big does that protest vote get? You know, and does does Biden, you know, try to do a little bit of you know advertising or whatever it is in the primaries, you know, to to, to you know, build himself up a little bit? I mean, I think it's more of a warning sign, you know, about mm-hmm. the president as opposed to it is you know anything particularly in favor of of RFK Jr. The free press uh, so, compared the free press compared him Dan to uh, to the Pat Buchanan run, um, yeah, and I, and I feel like that's that's uh, somewhat accurate, just in, in the sense of like that run was never really, you know, you know, if if you read Pat's book and if you read the you know the various other you know sort of things around that 1992 candidacy, 1991 92 candidacy, you know, it was it was not really bent on the idea that they were going to be able to seize power from a sitting president. It was more about adjusting his performance and sending a signal that people were dissatisfied is that all this is well so but that that analogy is is actually catastrophic for biden and for the democratic party for a couple of reasons one is if you believe at least one of the dominant narratives about 2016 and i kind of do with reservations you know pat buchanan's run the pat buchanan won right it just took him 20 years Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and in the near term, as I think I think the the Weiss Free Press piece points out in the near term, you know, it might have fatally hurt uh, a Bush in his reelection. But I also think, you know, the dynamic in 92 that's not there in 24 that that is going to save Biden is that Kennedy's not running as a Ross Perot independent third party guy. So he's he's going to be fine from an electoral standpoint. I think the bigger concern by orders of magnitude are what the RFK run says about the sclerotic geriatric leadership of the Democratic Party and also about this sort of undercurrent of populism and not just, you know, and I'm, I want to be clear, I'm using populism in the pejorative sense. I think there's some there's a little bit of healthy populism and there are ways in which populism can be healthy. But I'm talking about a kind of politics of paranoia um, that, you know, we could we could have a whole hour long conversation about 
why there's absolutely good reasons for American voters to be skeptical of the institutions that run this country and to not to be sort of anti-institutionalist. And that and that paranoid populism is justified for all sorts of reasons. But nevertheless, it's an undercurrent that the Democratic Party hasn't yet had to deal with. The Republican Party has spent the last eight years dealing with it. The Democrats haven't had to deal with it. And the other thing is just the age, right? And I mean, it, it, I think it's a bigger issue. It's bigger than just Joe Biden. I mean, he's obviously the figurehead, but the Democratic coalition doesn't realize the extent to which it's this kind of stitched together Frankenstein monster that cannot work electorally when you pry it apart. And and by that, I mean, right now you've got, you know, Biden sort of along for the ride with an, a young, progressive, vaguely woke activist class that's in the driver's seat. I mean, look at what they're trying to do to Feinstein. You know, they're they're young, angry, hungry, ambitious. And on the other hand, those guys don't understand the degree to which a handful of very, very old, very, very white people is pushing them over the finish line in race after race after race. And the the Kennedy run signals that those two things are going to come to a head very soon. If it's mm. not in 2024, it's in it's it's immediately thereafter. And Democrats are going to have to find themselves a new stable coalition the way the Republicans have been trying to do for the last eight years. All right. So I want to uh, when we do this show going forward, I want to uh, close out with a prediction. Uh, but because I didn't tell you ahead of time, I'm going to ask you to keep your prediction uh, to this context. Uh, if RFK Jr. does get to, say, 25 percent. Do you believe that someone else, someone more serious on the Democratic side will jump into the presidential primary race. Dan? I'm going to say no, because they're very, they're, that party is very disciplined mm -hmm. for the time being. And they also, you know, have their, I, I think they have their eyes on the prize. They know that, that Biden is the vehicle for them in the near term. And that frankly, until one or both of Biden and Trump die, these two guys are going to be running against each other till the end of time. John, so what I do think, you think? <laughs> I don't think so. Just because I think that, I don't know, with the exception of maybe a Gavin Newsom, who's able to pull the machinery together for a national race in the span of 12 months. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say yes. I, I don't know who it is, but I just feel like if if RFK gets that high, someone's going to look at him and say, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a member of Congress from a safe seat. I don't have to resign. I could easily run from the, for this and just massively increase my donor base. And, you know, not actually beat Biden, but maybe come closer. And if I were a young progressive with, uh, you know, with designs on eventually becoming president or designs on eventually forcing myself into that conversation, I would definitely, definitely consider it. Uh, all right, uh, gentlemen, this has been the first edition of Thunderdome. Dan, John, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.